Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. This week, we've got Thomas J. Ord, who is an author of many uh, different uh, books. But this week, we're going to talk about his uh, book, God Can't, and the concept of open relational theology or open theism, the concept that God can't do certain things, um, and also the concept that God may not know certain things, um, which is a fascinating world to explore. Um, And I'm really excited for this chat. And so hopefully you enjoy it. Let's get stuck in. Tom, it is fantastic having you on. I'm really, really excited. Uh, very privileged. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, reading your work. Um, and I've kind of followed you from afar on, on uh, Twitter. I don't go on Twitter nearly enough. You know, you need an Instagram. Instagram is where it's at. I don't know if you have it, do you? You're, you're I do, but I'm right? not on it enough. I am okay. a photographer. Yeah, yeah you, need to, you need to get on Instagram, man, and be yeah, on it. I do occasionally, <laughs> maybe once or twice a week. But <laughs> oh, It's just a better world. Uh, Twitter and, and Facebook, I just find is this like hodgepodge of people arguing. Um, but no, I, I have enjoyed when I have logged onto Twitter. Occasionally, I'll see a tweet from you and go, oh, that's great. Um, but I, I've loved your book, uh, specifically, uh, God Can't, which is a fantastic title. <laughs> Just the title, right? It's a bit like, you remember when Rob Bell brought his book, Love Wins, and before it even came out, people were like, this guy's out, get him out. <laughs> you bring true. out a book called God Can't, and you're going to have John Piper going, right? Farewell, Ord. <laughs> I don't know what, rhyme, right. what rhymes with Ord. But <laughs> yeah, good question. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, why don't you give yourself a bit of a, uh, an introduction, let people know um, who you are uh, a little bit about your background and we can dive in there. I'm sure we'll kind of bounce around all over the place, but um, it will give us a bit of a springboard to go from. Sure. I uh, grew up in a fairly traditional Christian home, uh, fairly good parents in a little farming community in east of the northwest part of the United States. And uh, church was a really important part of my life, my family's life. I like to say I accepted Jesus into my heart multiple times as a kid. And by the time I was in high school and college, I was taking Christianity very seriously. I was one of these people who did a lot of evangelism, door-to-door witnessing, witnessing on planes at the beach, etc. I took it pretty seriously by the time I was in my early 20s. Yeah. And um, then I took a philosophy of religion course my last year in college. It, it happened to be... I was preparing for ministry. I planned to be in some kind of uh, service. I didn't know exactly what, but I took this course. And for the first time in my life, I read uh, writings from atheists, agnostics, people from other religious traditions. Hmm. And although I had plenty of conversations with folks, you know, who had those kind of leanings, None of them were really as smart as the people I was reading. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you're, when you're a gung-ho evangelist, you're an evangelical who's trying to change the world, you know, you've got all your little answers. You've studied mm-hmm. the Bible and you can point to your proof text and say, you know, well, here, you got a question? Here's the right answer. Just turn your yeah. Bible to this passage or whatever. So, you know, I was pretty good at that. But these guys were as, and almost all were guys. I can't think of any girls, but most of them were guys. They were, they were as smart or smarter than me. Hmm. And it really, really, it really, even at your last year in college. I know. Can it's you amazing, believe it? it? When we find these people, you know. <laughs> uh, and so it really was for the sake of intellectual honesty that I stopped believing in God. Wow. I'll never forget coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting in the car and me turning to her and saying, 
you know what? I just can't believe in God anymore. Wow. And she was also a, a religion major. So we were both preparing for ministry. And yeah. here I was saying, you know, I can't do this. Um, That's and, wild. You know, some people, I don't know about you, but I've, I've encountered atheists who turn to, or agnostics, who reject the faith they've been given for various reasons. You know, some of them maybe are just rebelling against the status quo. Maybe some of them, you know, want to shed off these moral constraints and sort of live a freer life. Or, you know, maybe they've been abused by pastors or family and they say, mm -hmm. no way, I'm going to believe in a God that, you know, this person endorses. For me, it was none of that. For me, it was really intellectual. It was like, hmm. okay, the reasons I think there's a God, now I've got some really good arguments against that. What do I, what should I do? Well, I guess for sake of honesty, I need to give up those reasons. Wow. Um, so what did that, but, was that quite a, was that quite a, I mean, cause uh, you know, you do that course in college. It's how long is that? Like three months, four months, probably not even that long in this college. Right? Yeah. yeah. It was a couple of months. So, yeah, I mean, maybe. that's a, that's a, a, a small window to be like going gung ho, going for it. And then going like, Whoa, this has hit me. Like took me for like, you know, six here. Like what's happened yes. to then go. So was this a, you're reading their arguments and you're going, well, I guess I'm just wrong. Like, screw it or were you going wait hold on there's gotta be a right answer there's gotta i just maybe don't know it or how did how yeah. did you process because intellectually like i know for me I, I engage with most things quite intellectually i'm not the most uh, uh emotive driven person um but uh i know for me i would i would always be going well there's got to be an answer to back up my I, i'm very rooted yeah. in what i like to believe um, sure yeah it how wasn't did you just like an that? overnight thing i mean it was also the case that as an evangelist, I really wasn't seeing the kind of results I thought I ought to right. see, you know, like, uh, yeah, I could argue most people under the bus, but they really didn't seem to change their lives very hmm. radically. And those who said yes to Jesus, you know, they didn't, they didn't seem to mature very quickly. And so there had to be more to it than what I was doing. So I was kind of open to the possibility that I could be wrong about some things. Sure. Um, and the other thing is that I, I really kept at it. Like, you know, I didn't say, oh, there's an argument I haven't heard before. That undermines what I believe. Well, you know, I think I'm going to become a plumber now. You know, I, <laughs> I just sort of, I kept thinking about it. I kept wrestling with it. And really it was two things that brought me back to thinking it was more plausible than not that there was a God. One was I had this sense that there needed to be something like ultimate meaning in life. Mm. And I couldn't make sense of meaning beyond just my personal preference or the preference of my group or whatever, but something ultimate. If there wasn't an ultimate ground for meaning that most people call God. So that was one. It was a quest for meaning. The second one is I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to be loving. That In some sense, you know, it is true that love is the answer. Mm. And I couldn't make good sense intellectually of those intuitions if there wasn't some kind of a source for those intuitions about love. And that source is what a lot of people, I think, want to call God. Mm. So I remember, you know, just saying, okay, well, 
I don't know there's a God. I still don't know there's a God. I'm not certain there's a God. But I remember thinking, it seems more likely if these things are going to make sense that there has to be something like a God. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I graduated from college, uh, went and interviewed to become an associate pastor at some churches. And basically my theology was, there is a loving God. Jesus is pretty cool. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Did you put that on your resume? <laughs> <laughs> I actually lost a job at an interview. I had a guy, a pastor asked me my, you know, what, what do you think about Jesus? And I was honest and he was like, okay, well that ain't enough. You know? <laughs> yeah. Which you can understand, right? I mean, yes. you're, you're running a kind of like main like conventional Christian church and the guy's like, yeah, I, yeah, he's a decent guy. I'm not yeah. sure beyond that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of you know, ask the question, what's Jesus' atoning sacrifice for? And I'm like, got me. I mean, yeah. I don't believe in a God who wants to kill his son. So, <laughs> oh, that, I had a friend who went through, I think it was four, or it was either three or four rounds of interviews to become like an associate pastor. Or I can't remember, it was maybe a worship pastor or something. It was pretty, pretty uh, involved in a big church. And he went through multiple rounds. They liked him. Like, they were like, we really want you. On the last interview, they asked him what he believed about tithing, I think. And he was like, well, it's like obviously like it's not like mandated like you're kind of prosperity gospel people would think i i do tithe but like i'm not going to tell people like the bible says you have to tithe i just don't think that does that yeah never called him back just overnight uh, we're just like all right well you can leave then and just didn't talk <laughs> <I'm> like uh, <laughs> um, so like if that's the sort of thing that some christians are like well we have to draw a line in that sand somewhere when you get when you go in going but the thing about Jesus, I don't know what cross really means. Like, I mean, I know that this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. man, that's a biggie. How did your How did your wife cope with that? Right, because that's a big thing for people that go through these journeys. Uh, it's hard enough to do that on your own when yes. you're. I, I know you're saying you're engaged at this point, right? Not married, right? But even still, yeah. you're you're kind of pretty tied in. You're committed to each other. She's passionately pursuing some sort of religious kind of um, career path. And the person she wants to spend the rest of her life with turns around and goes, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a terrifying moment, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's been a wild ride for her. I mean, throughout our dating and marriage uh, life, because, I mean, not only did she stick with me despite my doubts about what I believed, mm. um, I've always been the one who is probably more intellectually engaged in wrestling with these questions. And so I would periodically, you know, come up and tell her something like, you know, I don't believe in a literal hell. And, and she would like, she would say, well, like she hasn't moved through the steps intellectually yeah. to get there. You know, you it's just not like she chucked her off gonna, the deep end. <laughs> yeah. Not like she was going to argue for a hell, but you know, she, she just wasn't moving through the yeah. learning process. And, you know, same with it comes to graduate school and PhD, you know, it's just, she went down a, an education path as a public school teacher and, and mm. she had different things she was concerned about. So yeah, yeah my wife's been pretty amazing to stick with me through all of yeah, this. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's a, I, one of the things I, I'm doing every day is talking to dozens of people, helping them through their journeys. And frequently i mean more frequently than not couples don't do this at the same pace uh, right. and if they oh, are yeah. at the same pace they're usually starting at different points <laughs> so even yeah. then it's 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 hard to navigate and, and it can be a it can be a real make or break thing uh, you know it can be really complex and and i think different people are very different you know my wife is very different to me 
Um, she's quite intellectual. She's got a degree in philosophy. She loves that stuff. Eh, she doesn't love it that much though. You know, she's like, eh, I'm not going to spend my spare time sitting mulling over the, you know, yeah. the meaning of the universe. She's like, I'll, I'll watch some TV or I'll hang out with friends. Or uh, I'm like, maybe we can solve like the problem of evil. If I just stare at this blank wall and think for another 28 minutes, <laughs> um, but I'll do the it. same thing. I remember one of our first dates, um, she asked me, she said, oh, I heard you've got some like heretical views. Like, what are some of them? And I was like, well, you know, one of them is I, I don't believe that hell is a place you go to eternally, consciously be, be tormented forever. And she had like an existential crisis on the spot, you know? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess that's how people that aren't on the journey respond to this. This is very right, early on right. in my, my process of navigating a lot of this as well. Um, so that's, that is amazing that your, your wife managed to uh, navigate and walk with you through that. Um, so is, yeah. what, what happened next after that then? So you, you, you go through this kind of like tailspin of like, I'm not really sure what's going on to, well, I'm kind of sure as sure as I can be uh, that there's some kind of fundamentals here that point towards a God. And I think Jesus is heavily linked into this. Um, you, you're, you're not doing so well on the interview stage <laughs> because of these well, solid I, positions you take. <laughs> yeah. I ended up getting a job as a youth pastor in a little farming community and I uh, was there for four years. My senior pastor was a really good guy, but not deep intellectually. Uh, he right, will okay. admit that very quickly. And uh, this was, you know, before the internet. So it wasn't like I had a community of people to be wrestling with these things yeah. through. I started reading a lot of books. I mean, I already had read a ton, but I was doing that more. I found a local youth pastor who was also, even though he's from a very different theological perspective, he was also wrestling with big questions. And so we started what we called the Dead Theologians Society, and nice. we would meet every few months and argue about theology. But during that time as a youth pastor, I realized there were lots of other people who were wrestling with these big questions, you know, even some in high school who were particularly bright. And I thought, you know, I, I think I want to go and be in a context in which I'm dealing with, you know, young 20-somethings or 20-somethings, people who are wrestling with these big questions at this prime yeah. time in their life. And so I should go get a degree and see if I could become a professor. And so after four years of full-time ministry, I went and did a master's of divinity and then a master's of art and religion, and then did my PhD. And so it took about, let's see, that was from about eight years wow. from 92 to 99, seven years. Yeah. Wow. Um, to do those things. And then I started teaching uh, philosophy and theology uh, in near the Boston area and eventually took a job in Idaho where I taught almost mostly theology, occasionally some philosophy, but. Right. Wow. What was your doctorate in? Well, the degree is theology and philosophy of religion. So uh, my, my particular focus really gets to kind of the point of God can't. Um, my particular focus is I wanted to have what we would say in philosophy is a metaphysics, a, a worldview, an overall framework to try to make sense of my big questions, including the questions of evil, but, you know, questions of science and religion, mm. questions of revelation, all that sort of stuff. And so I was attracted to what I now call open and relational theology. And uh, that has a particular view of God's relation to the universe that I found particularly helpful. 
Awesome. Well, why don't you expand on that? Because I, I feel like that's where we want to spend a lot of time today. Um, Sounds I, I wanna, good. I, I like to have my guests stay in their area of expertise as well, you know, so I, I, I'm really bad for asking people their opinion on all sorts of different things. So be, feel free to go, for, I don't know. That's not what I'm focused on. So let's make sure we're trying to at least uh, yeah. as much of the time focus on your area of expertise. Well, one of my <laughs> problems, Phil, is that I have so many different interests and I Excellent. just go this way Excellent. and that and do papers and write books on all kinds of topics. So perfect. Um, yeah. Well, you're suited for this podcast then. Cause that's why it goes everywhere. <laughs> I'm interested in absolutely everything and everything. Good, so. good. Great. But yeah, uh, well, let me start with open relational theology and then maybe we can work from there. Um, yeah. It surprises a lot of people to when they f- discover that most of the major Christian and Muslim theologians in history have believed that God doesn't care a whit about what happens on the earth. And I mean by care is not affected by any, in any way whatsoever. The classic language is God is impassable. That means that God Whatever we do doesn't affect God in any sense whatsoever. God doesn't receive. God doesn't, isn't influenced by the world. I believe God is influenced. And I use the word relational to talk about that. So, you know, you, you list your major theologian Christian history, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Augustine. None of them thought that our prayers actually had an influence on God. None of them thought that God could truly be compassionate in the sense of having what happened in the world have an effect on God's emotions. Yeah. Relational theologians think, yeah, God really does have something like emotions. God really is affected. Our prayers can make a difference. It really fits nicely with what I think is a general thrust of the Bible, even though I don't want to claim the Bible is like a systematic theology, but it it, I think it fits nicely with a general view of a God who is engaging moment by moment, mm. giving and receiving with the world. So that's the relational part of open relational. Yeah. The open part is going to sound more controversial, but I suspect that it's actually might be more intuitive than you, your listeners might initially think. The open view says that the future is really the future for us and for God. Mm. In other words, instead of thinking of God as outside of time and seeing all of history in one now so that the past and the present are the same for God, this view says that there's really a past for God, a really a present for God, and the future is something God can't know with absolute certainty because it hasn't yet happened yet. Mm. So the future is open for God and for us. Another way to say it is that God experiences time moment by moment, sequentially, like we do. And uh, that's also not been the view of God's relation to time by people like Augustine, Calvin, Luther, all those folks. So um, openness theologians or open and relational theologians take really seriously the idea that God moves through time analogously to how we move through time. Yeah. I feel like, um, so I, I have a small introduction on, on one of my websites where I do free videos for um, kind of introducing different topics. And I, and I have a, a section on open theism. So, Great. Um, oh, so I didn't know that. 
I'm aware of it. And maybe some of my listeners might have got around to listen. I don't know if they have or not. So some will be like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I've heard that before. Others are going to be like, who is this guy? Let's burn him. Um, and yeah. then others are going to go, ah, that's why I'm here. I want to hear something crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so that, that is, um, it feels extremely out of left field for most Christians. I mean, it's really yeah. wild. Um, whereas the relational element, I feel that there's probably been more and more of an evolution of that being more normative in Definitely. modern Christianity. Is, is that a fair assumption? Just in that we've shifted from more of a communal uh, top-down God that just does things on the whole, as opposed to like a more personal relational Jesus, yes. you know, that kind of yeah. concept. So is that, is that side of what you uh, are looking at when you're talking about this open relational theology, is that probably the side that's more uh, welcome or do you feel more that's more welcomed by people than, than the element of the yes, open kind of thing? I think kind that's of a great way to put it. And then oftentimes for people who see the wisdom, I'll say in the relational view, I'll say, well, now if God is relational and is in giving and receiving, mm. doesn't that kind of presuppose there's one moment God gave and the next moment God received. Yeah. And that sounds like God is time full or, moment by moment. There's some kind of a sequence in God's experience. And so the relational, it doesn't always lead people to accept the openness, but once they see the implications of the relational, they then see how it could be possible that God is moving through time like we are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm always struck by this. I remember as a, as a teenager reading the Bible and just reading these kind of like bizarre emotions that God has um, and thinking, that's a weird emotion for God to have. Like it's, it's, it's very anthropomorphized in, in a sense. And maybe that is what the writers are doing. They're, they're projecting themselves onto a being that is beyond any of that. Um, but if, if we are to go, no, no, maybe this is accurate. Maybe this Bible is reflecting clearly what God's like. It's weird that God can be surprised. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. oh, that's a weird one to put in there. Or it's weird yeah. that God can regret something. Can you regret yes. something when you know it's going to go a certain way? Um, I don't think so. so. I remember At least not kind generally. of wrestling with that as a kid, but like not not as a kid, maybe more late teens, but going, but I don't have any outs. You know, I, I, yes. there's no, there, there wasn't an option for me to go, oh, maybe he doesn't know the future. Like that just wasn't on the cards. Like, you know, when you're yeah. a good evangelical Christian, that's not like, right, Phil, here's your four options. You know, <laughs> uh, it maybe, maybe would be like, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism would be like right. broad. This is, this is the options, you know, either God. Uh, knows the future and predestines you to do this, 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 and this, and he's an asshole. Or God <laughs> knows the future, but lets you do it. But at some point he made you the way you are. And therefore he made you in a way that you would do that. And he's an asshole. Like, I was like, it's still like, th there's no way of me getting out of God being an asshole. <laughs> he's really not a great person. Um, yep. And I remember having these arguments with my pastors and they're like, I don't understand. Like, obviously this is better than that because of this, but they fail to see that on some level to, to me, and this has always been my attraction to open theism when I came across, it, I think I came across it through Greg Boyd, probably. I know he's a big guy for the, this topic uh, in a lot of people's uh, worlds, but I just, I constantly was going, I just can't see the difference between these views of, of being predestined and free will that is as, as soon as you have a, a, a requirement that God knows the future, he's not a very good person. <laughs> to me um and so that's really fascinating so do you want to go into we can go into relational stuff more but i'm like this open world is just like it's such a playground of like well, what ifs 
in, in my sense. Yes. My, my inner yes. philosopher loves this part. You know, you get to put down yeah. the Bible of the extreme theologies and go, yeah, well, let's look at that and allow that to play in. But what if we just play in this philosophical, metaphysical kind of playground? God not knowing the future. I mean, that's a radical position. Is, is, is that a position that was played with early in the faith at any point? Or is this a very modern kind of concept? Well, um, the typical story an open theist would tell is that the Bible points to an open view of God because of some of the things you've mentioned, a God who repents, has regrets, makes plans, does covenants, all that sort of thing. But the story an open theist would usually tell is that because of Aristotle and then Neoplatonic philosophy's influence on Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and many others, a kind of Greek philosophical metaphysics or philosophy began to inform or shape the way theology was played out. And, you know, there might be some other factors that are involved here, like the rise of politics and power. And, you know, you could tell the story in different kinds of ways. But the open theist would want to say, look, if you just have the biblical text as your primary resource, it should lead you to something like an open view and the problem has been these, you know, not that philosophy is bad, but some philosophies are going to be better than others. And this mm. particular philosophy hasn't been helpful in portraying the God, at least the majority of scripture seems to describe. Sure. Is there any evidence in um, any kind of early Judaism or anything like that? Because from my understanding of like kind of looking through like the Talmud and like, you know, Midrash kind of exploration of the scriptures and looking at it from different I've not particularly come across that, but I am not well-versed in the Old Testament or early yeah, Judaism. Yeah, it's less common in Judaism, although Maimonides mm. was very much influenced by okay. a Neoplatonic philosophy. So you can find major Jewish uh, thinkers, philosophers, who uh, also thought God was probably timeless. But generally speaking, because the Jewish tradition, Judaism has focused so much upon the scriptures and wrestling with those, it's a lot of Jewish theologians and philosophers are open theists. Okay. Uh, you know, perhaps maybe the most influential 20th century Jewish scholar, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, yeah. definitely an open theist. Wow, fascinating. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I, I often wonder when I read certain, I, I just um, read his book um, on the Sabbath, um, Tiny um, Little Book, it's really great. Um, but uh, I often wonder when I'm reading certain people, I'm like, they could maybe be an open theist, but I, I feel like I'm, 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 I'm wishing people into my camp, if that makes sense. You know, you're like, oh yeah, they're yeah. on my side. You're right. We all want to do yeah. that. Don't we? Especially if they're one of the biggies, you know, like you get right. on your sides. I mean, like, who's going to argue? Um, well, you know, because open theism is so controversial, a lot of people really did hide their, yeah. their affinities. I mean, I don't know how big this guy is over in the UK, but uh, here in the States, um, um, Dallas Willard, do you know that yeah. name? Yeah, yeah. Dallas Willard, open theist, yeah. but a closeted one. <laughs> I yeah. even asked him personally about it. And he didn't want to talk to me. So wow. uh, there's certain political implications if if people like Dallas Willard came out as an open theist. Sure. Well, I mean, it's it's probably... Uh... <laughs> it's more extreme it's, it's up there though as, as you're going into your interview and going i don't know what i believe about jesus you know if you're uh, a big you know uh professor or whatever i mean you know you, you're uh you're uh 
a, a theologian at a, a seminary or something right now, aren't you? Yeah. You know, so if you were, if that, I don't know what affiliation that is or what it looks like, but you know, if, I'm assuming it's fairly chill with you writing these books. So, um, but you know, if you're part of, I don't know, uh, some very, very uh, conservative kind of conventional uh, camp and you, you're not likely to get away with something like going, I don't know if God knows what's going to happen next. Like that's a huge statement for, you know, a huge portion of Christians. I'm really happy you're saying this, Phil, because this <laughs> means that uh, you've not spent a lot of time in the internet looking me up because I lost my job five years ago. Oh, wow. And... <laughs> okay. Sorry. This is great. This is wonderful. <laughs> not at the time, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at the time at all. And uh, oh, still wow. painful. I bet. But, I um, bet. And while me losing my job, open theism wasn't explicitly said as the reason. Right. The reason was given was a dip in enrollment. It was really one of the reasons. It was theological kinds of yeah. things. I had to go through a, a trial, a heresy trial. I made it through that trial. That's why they had to come up with some other reason to let me go. Right. But yeah, these are wow. big issues that people, especially who want a particular kind of theology i'll just say a conservative theology that's general but i'll just say no, a yeah. conservative theology it gets them pretty uh angry to yeah. find out there's an alternative yeah this is a so this might be a complete science <laughs> detour but let's go on this one yeah. um, okay this is something fast i just had um, a friend of mine who's um doing a doctorate at king's college um and we were talking about the dynamic of um the the academy versus kind of the the, the church uh, i use church more as a statement of the institution than the, the body of christ okay um but when we look at the academy um maybe where it is out of the chains or the or the limitations of the church um you will find these extraordinary diversities of, of beliefs and ideologies and concepts you know look at like a very um secular university um, that's very well regarded. It's got some of the smartest theologians in the world on their things. They could basically say whatever the heck they want about some sort of theological right. principle because it's the, the, the institution that they are part of isn't this um, uh, church uh, institution that has a very specific set of beliefs and principles. And there is this element where there's almost like a conflict of interest when we look at certain theological um, seminaries, uh, colleges, whatever labels they, they have. Um, and I know that can be a big gray area anyway, what these kind of uh, labels mean. It feels that a lot of um, academics have their hands tied when they're in um, an institution that does have a, a statement of faith sort of thing behind it on some level. You know, if you're, if you're teaching in a Baptist seminary, you're not going to get away with a lot of things, right? Because the Baptists believe the Baptist stuff, uh, yeah, and so when they're bringing Baptist, their students yeah. in, they yeah, of course. And 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 I, I'm speaking from Europe, where Baptist means basically anything. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. My dad was a Baptist; he was a Pentecostal. Um, you yeah. know, so in Europe it's very different. But I know in America it becomes a bit less. And then if you go into a certain subset, maybe a Southern Baptist, or you know, like you're like, okay, well that means that. So you yeah. go into a Southern Baptist college as a student, you know, you're coming out as a Southern Baptist with a yeah. very set kind of set of beliefs and if you don't come out that way you're going to find it really hard to get a job as a southern baptist pastor um, yeah. do, do you have thoughts on because i i know a lot of people that listen want to go into some levels of study and areas of uh, study and stuff would you recommend people try and avoid institutions that are tethered to kind of like um specific beliefs or ideas 
Not necessarily. Uh, it is a very complex set of issues. You know, in, in the States, we call it the question of academic freedom. Hmm. You know, how much freedom do you have to pursue the questions and topics you think are important? And in a, quote, uh, secular or state kind of university, or at least a private college that doesn't have any particular theological um, affinities or commitments, you know, that range of theological freedom or academic freedom is much wider. Mm. But if you end up deciding you're going to be, to use your illustration, at a Baptist school, the Baptist school has certain commitments in the Baptist tradition. And while they're going to allow for a range of diversity, it's going to, that range is going to depend upon how one interprets what the core ideas are in that tradition. Mm. So in my particular case, you know, I'm a part of a Wesleyan theological tradition, and it has a certain range, a certain umbrella. Um, my ideas, I think, fit under that umbrella, and so do the majority of scholars in that tradition. But uh, the scholars in a liberal arts Christian school, private school in the States, they don't really have a lot of power. You know, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the donors, it's the major pastors who are sending their students to this institution they're the ones who've got most of the power hmm. and so if they think you're outside the umbrella even though you're not outside it according to what other scholars say well you know you've got a it's real problem. difficult time on your hands hmm. so um i think as a scholar you know let's say let's say i'm, I'm a baptist and i start thinking and believing things that really don't fit with the core of the Baptist tradition. Well, I think you probably ought to look for another job, or if you're the kind of person who can just keep it all inside and teach something you don't believe, which a lot of scholars do, yeah. um, you could do that route. Um, for me, I always felt like I was still a part of the tradition, uh, maybe not uh, you know, the conservative part of that tradition, but still a part of the tradition. But um, others had with more power had other ideas. <laughs> yeah. So did you did you not necessarily see this coming when you were kind of looking at some of the ideas you're looking at and you you weren't going, oh, this is really close to the line. I might I might not <laughs> this yeah. might not go well. Or was that something you had to juggle and wrestle with and go, oh, do I want to talk about this? Do I want to explore this publicly? Maybe it's just maybe this is me time stuff, you know, <laughs> maybe this is yeah. when I go home. Um, so um this you don't have to most, talk about this either if, if this is kind of no, an all. area I that's I don't mind. probably not. So what a lot of scholars do is once they get their first position, they've got their PhD or whatever doctoral degree they have, um, they'll make a couple of choices. Well, at least one big choice. Am I going to focus my writing on the academy and who's going to read it there? Mm -hmm. Am I going to focus it on the church or the public? And usually the church and the public are intertwined, but they can be separated. And uh, many people will, it's an either or choice. I decided I was going to do both. Right. Now that makes me particularly vulnerable because stuff that I write for the academy that questions the virgin birth, let's say, Sure. can filter down into the local church. And there can be some pastors who think the virgin birth is an essential part yeah. of the Christian tradition that are going to get angry. Likewise, sometimes you write things really plainly for the person in the pew, 
and you're worried that the your academic colleagues are going to say, "Oh, that's just fluff," you know. That's mm. so you don't have the kind of prestige. But I decided I was going to go both directions, and so for many years I would write one book for the church and the next one for the academy, mm. church academy, go back and forth, and. Um, I decided I was going to put my controversial ideas on blogs and say them on podcasts. And, you know, I was going to be out there and that in many ways, put a target on my chest. Yeah. Um, but the upside is I felt like I could help a lot of people. Yeah. Huge. Amount. Um, so there's pros and cons to that strategy. It feels, I was talking about this with Jared, the, the guy I was mentioned earlier, like it feels that, there aren't a huge amount of people that do both that, that there are obviously Very when you few. look at the, the the grand spec you stand back and look at all humanity there's probably several thousands but you know when you're actually sitting there looking at the christian bestseller list and you're going right i want someone that is doing hard graft i want someone that has dedicated eight years to this one topic and written something with you know more footnotes than most of these books you know and i want them to Re, re, rewrite it all for an idiot like me uh, that's a really <laughs> rare group you know you've oh, got very certain rare. people that are doing it really well but they are few and far between that's right um, it's hard it's very hard yeah you would think that you know we all grow up you know how should i say this we all grow up up without phds right <laughs> so you would think that once you got a phd and you learn that lingo it would be really easy just sort of drift back into what you talked right. before you got a phd but it is not easy yeah because you know you get your doctoral degree you've given your life to these complex ideas and the words associated with ideas mean so much to you you don't want to give up yep. and so you want to use you know some $20,000 word in this in this article you're writing to your grandmother and it, it just doesn't work no. you know so yeah. It's That's hard. really interesting. Who do you think are some of the um the best kind of uh scholars out there that are doing this? Wow, that's a good question. Obviously, aside from yourself, you know, I mean, who's number two, three? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. Take someone like Greg Boyd. Mm. Greg has a PhD and he does a lot of research, but he can also write for the common person. Um, one of Greg's difficulties is that because he's a pastor, he doesn't get to engage in as much with voices in the academy. Sure. Um, so um, I'm not saying you know, he, he would be a good person, I think, who does both. Hmm. Um, N.T. Wright can do it, although I think Tom could do could work harder on being more accessible. <laughs> but he's, he, he does a good job, I think. Yeah. Uh, he, he writes for both. I get recommended um, N.T. all the time. And I, I've got to admit, I've read a couple of his books and I thought they were average yeah okay yeah. but i was like i i don't understand why so many people are telling me i have to read this like yeah and i don't know if it's just i'm just not in that space i don't I, i'm not interested in what he's writing about I mean, it's mostly stuff that i'm fairly interested in but yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've never got it but I, he's the one of the first names that often comes up and it's certainly that's still very accessible in a lot of the evangelical world even like yes right um, but yeah. still pushing a lot of people um uh into scholarly topics that most evangelicals won't even consider uh, right. That's what makes him writers. interesting because it, it kind of depends on who the audience is. If you, if you have a conservative evangelical background, you might think Tom Wright's kind of progressive. 
Mm. Like, but if you're coming from a mainline progressive background, you think, well, Tom Wright, well, what's the big deal about this guy? You know, like, yeah, uh, yeah I thought I was told this in Sunday school that heaven can be on earth, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, it yeah. kind of depends on your background. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm constantly fascinated by this. If you think of any others, just, just shout them at some point. Okay, but, yeah. um, but because I think one of the things that, that strikes me as fascinating, so we look at something maybe like open theism, like open theism's kind of exploded onto the scene in, I've been in the world of kind of like studying this stuff and kind of conveying it to um, a, a more general audience that aren't academic. And I'm not academic. I, you know, I've got a, a regular undergraduate degree in computing, um, but I just like to study and I'm really, really not very smart and I don't read fast. So I, I open up these academic things and I'm like, I have no idea what the hell this is saying. I'm gonna have to work hard to figure this out. Um, so I think it makes me being able to write something for the average person really easy because I'm going, oh, I spent a month reading this one paper trying to figure it out. I can definitely explain it to you as an idiot because I'm clearly an idiot here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so, you know, it's like, if you can get the kids to understand quantum mechanics, the kid is going to explain it to everyone fantastically. Um, <laughs> but I, I, one thing I've noticed is that these kind of topics, some of these topics um, are often decades from really filtering into the institutional church, the, the average Christian's life. And, and to me, something like open theism, it feels like it was barely talked about at all. And now it's, it's <laughs> I don't think it's popular yet, but it, it seems like it's much more, there's much more on there. You go into Google Scholar and type in open theism or, or any of the kind of buzzwords associated with that, you'll find dozens and dozens of papers on yes, it yeah. um, and some. Um, and, and I think that generally the, the, the format has been people don't typically write for the layperson. They have for oh. it scholarly. It filters down over like 50 years or something through a pastor that eventually kind of tiptoes a bit and, and bit by bit, it makes it into the, the, the real world. Do you see, do you see open theism following that format? Or do you think that people like yourself, Greg, that have written about these um, kind of topics, do you see that kind of speeding up that process? Like, I or are you does, observing yeah. that on, on the whole? Yeah, I think the the process is. I don't know how fast it's going. I don't know how to gauge that. Sure, I'm just throwing out so, dates as well. I mean, I, I don't know if it's fifty yeah. years or whatever, but yeah, yeah. But books like you know you mentioned earlier, my book God Can't, that's really written for a person who doesn't have any background in theology mm. and philosophy. Who just you know maybe if maybe they've grown up in the church or around the church or they have relatives who are believers. And they've asked those hard questions and they've been dissatisfied with the usual answers. A book like God Can't, even though I don't think I ever used the phrase open theism in that whole book. No, I didn't see it once when I read it. Yeah. I, remember, I remember literally thinking at the end, I was like, this feels like he's saying a lot of things that are to do with open theism. He didn't mention it. Like, yeah. I wonder if he's, is he? Is he not? <laughs> so I remember actually you know, thinking when funny. you first kind of wrote it. <laughs> what's funny, Phil, is I wrote a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God in 2015. Okay. I think it's pretty readable, but it's really, it was published by an academic press. Okay. Um, and it, you know, got lots of great reviews, sold super well, you know, people do dissertations on it. I'm very, very happy with that book. But um Many people who read it said, you know, this is just too academic. I hmm. want something I can give my mother to read. And so I wrote God Can't. Well, the strange thing about God Can't is that I have been invited to speak in dozens, literally dozens of graduate schools and seminaries. 
people who I thought would have wanted the uncontrolling love of God because it was more academic, yeah. but they're having their graduate students read God can't. <laughs> so I, I've asked a few of them and I've got the same answer. The answer is this. We know that our students, most of them are going to be pastors and they can't use the language that yeah. we're teaching here. So your book translates those big ideas of open theism in yeah. ways that people can understand. And so we want our graduate students to read your book. Yeah. That's so I think huge yeah. dynamic. And that, that is, I think, what translates it into the day to day person's life, isn't it? I mean, it's the, the pastor often is the middle ground where they go into these scholarly worlds and study. Um, and then they go into the real world and go, this person's husband's dying on a sick, you know, on a hospital bed. I don't think they care if I call it open theism or blah, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't make any yeah, difference exactly. to them. They just yeah. want to like be loved. They want to be comforted. Like, and yes. I need some language for that. And I think, yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I, I think not only do they, do they want to be loved and comforted to use your particular illustration, at least when they're removed somewhat from the, in, uh, the situation, they want some kind of an answer that makes sense to them. Mm. I, I mean, I think we've sometimes not given the average person in the pew enough intellectual credit that they're asking bigger and deeper questions. Now, maybe the what blocks them from the kind of answers scholars want to give is the technical phrases and the terminology. But, um, you know, so many times I've heard on the problem of evil, look, you don't give people answers, you just suffer with them. And mm. I'm like, does it have to be an either or? I mean. Yeah. Can we suffer with them and provide a plausible answer to what God must have been up to or not up to? Um, so, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, let's go into that topic, right? So you've got, um, you have this person, their partner's dying um, and they go, how can this be? How can, how can this, uh, you know, how could, how could there even be a God, you know, maybe it's a small kid dying or, you know I mean? Like this, you know, of course there's a tier of people that die where we're like, eh, of course that there could is. be. And then there's You're like, right. well, hold on, this is just not okay. You know, yeah. obviously it's like, you know, someone's dog dying is like obviously the worst of all of them, but you know, <laughs> we have these tiers, don't we? And it's like, ah, yeah, grandpa wasn't that nice a guy. I mean, like, you know, these things happen. Well, even <laughs> if he was a nice guy, you say, you know, a 95 year old, they had a good run. Yeah. A five yeah. year old, you're going like, come on, the whole it's life was ahead tough of Tough one to kind of answer. Yeah. So, what would you say to someone that's the, the, the five year old's dying? And of, we'll, we'll take the emotional side and put that to the side. So, I'm not going to require you to pass it as you do it. But how yeah. would you intellectually kind of present, well, what's going on here? Why is God allowing this or God not? allowing or, or unable like like your concepts of okay like how, how do you go in, into that topic and kind of explore that topic with someone well maybe i ought to begin with why i don't like the traditional answers so like yeah. some people will say to that person look uh you know god just needed another angel in heaven well you know that's a really poor answer that it's you don't hear that bad, as much it? yeah for a guy but that used, more, you know, creates angels, I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a more plausible answer is something like, um, you know, God could see that little Jimmy was going to do some bad things in the future, and therefore God killed him off early or allowed him to die early. Now, I don't think that's a good answer. But no. if you think God knows the future, then you might think that's plausible, that sure. God could see that Jimmy living into the future and was going to become a 
I don't know, a pimp and a rapist or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's a good answer, but it's better than God needed another angel. Yeah. It just but has a big the, hole of like, well, what about Hitler? Did he slip through the cracks or, you know, exactly, like how many people yes. didn't get like yeah, zipped yeah. out at early age or, or, you know, why not think Jimmy could have been the next mother Teresa, you know, like, they've been the world's greatest person instead of the world's worst. So there's, yeah, all kinds of flaws there. One of the ones that a lot of people will say is they'll, they'll play the big mystery card. They'll mm. say, look, you know, God's ways are not our ways. Uh, who are we to question a sovereign God? It's all in God's perfect, mysterious plan. Now, that's an attractive answer in part because at least I don't want to claim I got God figured out. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, I mean, you're, you, you've got a whole lot of hubris to walk around thinking you've got God figured out. So there's a certain kind of plausibility there. But I think it's a mystery card that goes too far. Because if you don't have a real good answer to the biggest question most people have, the number one reason atheists say they can't believe in God, um, then it seems like that's too big of a mystery. Mm. I sometimes like to put it this way. Um, I can't worship a God of mystery to that kind of degree because I'll never know whom the devil that God might be. Mm. The play on words is that you're really asking me to question God's fundamental goodness. And at least for me personally, I begin with the view that God is a God of love. Mm. And I'm willing to rethink God's power in light of that. Wow. So to answer your question, I think the God of the universe loves everyone and everything and because God's love is inherently uncontrolling, God can't control anyone or anything. Mm. Not that God won't stop that rape or won't stop that torture. God simply can't. Also, not that God is off on the sidelines watching popcorn, watching the disaster and not doing anything. No, I think God's fundamentally engaged at all levels of reality at all times and all places, always influencing, calling, acting toward the good. But God can't control anyone or anything. Mm. Yeah, that's so a lot of people probably I'm trying to like think through all the different objections. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> past me would certainly have a lot. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the big ones is, is, well, what do you mean God can't? Surely God can do everything. So are you just saying that uh, on some level God chooses to be unable? Or are you saying that there is fundamentally certain principles? I mean, this is way into the depths of metaphysics. Now, isn't it, right? Yeah. So is there, uh, this is in the weeds, you know, it's really good. Yes. Um, are you saying there's fundamental things? So if we attribute one thing to God, you cannot have another attribution. You know, God cannot be truly good and truly evil. So in the same sense, you can say God can't be evil because God is good. Um, yes. I think most people would probably not get too upset with that. Um, yeah. But when you start bringing it down to questioning things like his power, his knowledge, you know, I mean, you ask people to name three components of who god is and those are in the top three right every time it's like he knows yeah. all things he can do all things and it's like oh wait you just listed the two things i'm kind of trying to take off the table here um 
that's a huge thing, right? I mean, I mean, love is often very much in there, but I mean, these are like people rattle them off if you ask them to to yes. describe what what is God like or describe how God operates or. Uh, what makes God God? Even what makes God God? Well, I can be loving. God can be loving, sure, but I can't know everything. I can't do everything. So surely that makes Him somehow more God than me, and therefore, that's really essential. If we take that away, you yeah. Know? Uh, so Boy, there's so many ways I can do that. that question. Do it. Do I them all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me start with uh, kind of more of the metaphysical thing, but I'm going to use terminology that's not technical. All right. Sure. Um, there are three kind of options here that I like to talk about. One option, I'll call it voluntary divine self-limitation. This is the idea that God could control anyone or anything, but usually doesn't because God makes a decision, freely doesn't intervene to stop some evil. That's the voluntary choice on God's part. I'm rejecting that view. So it isn't, I'm not saying God chooses not to stop evil. I'm not going that route. On the other side of my view is the idea that God can't stop evil because God is constrained by these external forces, maybe the laws of nature or the devil or metaphysical laws or principalities and powers, these things that are outside of God. And God's like, oh man, I'd really like to step in and help out Phil here, but these things outside of me are stopping me from doing so. My view fits between those options. It says this, God really can't single-handedly stop evil in the world, not because God is constrained by external forces and not because God's just freely choosing not to, but it's God's very nature that decides what God can and can't do. God must be God, and God wouldn't be God if God was controlling. I sometimes point to this passage in uh, Paul's writing to Timothy in which Paul says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. Mm. There's some things God simply can't do because to do them, God would have to deny himself, go against God's own nature. Now, lots of Christian theologians in history have affirmed that. They haven't done it quite the way I'm doing it. But they've said things like, you know, God must exist. God can't say, you know, it's been a good run, but I'm slipping into nothingness tomorrow. Nope. It's part of God's nature to exist. What I'm claiming is that it's God's nature to love. God must love. And this love is inherently uncontrolling. Mm. So that's the difference between the voluntary self-limitation or external limitation. It's a view I to use the technical language, I call it essential kenosis or the uncontrolling love of God view. Mm, okay. Yeah. Great. So it feels to me like I, I, I get that and I, I like that. Um, I wonder if there is a component of the knowledge within this or of, of the knowing the future that makes this plausible because on some level it's a bit like what i was talking about if you keep stepping back eventually god becomes an asshole right so if you keep stepping back and you yeah. get to a point where god's going yeah so i am love and i'm not going to control any person so let's just like let the ant farm out and see what happens you know it's like well if you know that 80 percent of them are going to 
burn in a crisp, depending on what you believe about eternal hell or, you know, or yeah. if you know that, you know, 10% are going to die young and oh, a whole bunch of them are going to get cancer and there's going to be earthquakes and stuff. That's going to be crazy. I mean, like tsunamis yes. and people are going to die in floods. And, you know, if you know all these kind of outcomes, you're going to go, oh, I'll tell you what, it's not that high a percentage to get a really great ride out of this. Yeah. You, do you know what I mean? Like, so on I some level, a certain from, point yeah. that God lays out a thing where he's going, so I'm going to create this and not be able to control anything, but just be in the midst of it, which I think is a really exciting and very fantastic and, and, and uh, profound kind of uh, way to engage with, with the divine and with life. Um, but with the concept of knowing how this pans out and knowing how many people suffer, knowing how, do you understand that kind of component? Yes. So do you, it, that's so, truly an absolutely essential component of the the dynamic for God to have laid this out. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there's two issues going on here. The open theist can say God doesn't know with absolute certainty how things are going to play out. So God's not an asshole, to use your language, uh, because God didn't create it and know that, you know, five billion people are going are going to disobey and cause evil. And if you believe in hell, go to hell or whatever, be annihilated, whatever your afterlife view is. Um, so that helps to overcome that. But there's another issue here. Mm. And here, um, open theists have differing views. So I don't want to sound like I'm speaking for all open theists. Sure. I'm going to speak for myself at this point. All right. Think about what's implied in thinking that God created in the first place. Not only God's motive, but if God's really a creator, was God creating before our world came into existence? My view is that God has always been creating everlastingly. And God didn't create this universe out of absolute nothingness. Mm. That God is always in the business of creating in one moment out of that which God created in the previous moment. And that series is everlasting, had no beginning. Now, what this allows me to do is to say that, A, creating is God's nature and God always does it. B, give a, a motive for God creating. I think God creates because love compels God to. Um, if people who believe in creation out of nothing, who thinks God creates out of love, I want to say, okay, well, did God not love before God created? And they'll mm. say something like, well, God loved in the Trinity. And I said, well, let's, okay, God loved God's self, but what about loving others? So my view can overcome that sort of objection. And it says that God always creates moment by moment out of that which God previously created, which means that the beginning of our universe, roughly 13 billion years ago, God creates and sets into motion an evolutionary process that God continues to create through, not knowing for sure how it's going to end up, mm. but because love compels God to create others with whom God can have relationship, including complex creatures like you and me and dogs and dolphins, then God has a motive for that creating. And God then is not an asshole because of God's ability either to interrupt and stop evil mm. or somehow foreknow exactly how the numbers are all going to crunch out from sure. the start. So that that's a fascinating, uh, I, I like that a lot. Um, the fascinating component to me is that I've heard different open theists kind of lay out the concept of 
um, knowing for sure the future and just being that powerful that you know every possibility and probability. And so the possibility probability component, um, the way I heard it explained was like, you know, if you were to, uh, uh, you could sit a grandmaster chess player down op opposite me and they don't know me at all. They don't know what I'm going to do. They certainly don't know what I'm going to do in chess because I don't know what I'm going to do and I don't know what I'm doing, but they know they're going to win. At very worst, they might have a stalemate and they'll play again. But on the whole, they can play two or three games and there might be a couple of stalemates in there, but they're going to win. Um, I thought that was a very helpful, that was quite a helpful thing for me to understand of like, you know, they just know all the options and they know what to do in every option that's the best option. Um, and so unless they're met with someone that's actually, they're equal, they're going to win. Um, and so there's this concept of that God knows he's going to win, whatever that yeah. means, you know. Um, uh, Here again, open theists have different work? views. Okay, so yeah. Some open theists like the chess master analogy because it does kind of say there's a certain number of possible moves. God knows all of them. God knows how to counteract all these certain ones to eventually mm. get to win. Um, others say, well, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense because um, if, if there's no end to this process, I mean, unless you think that like the earth is going to end, we all go to heaven and time stops, well, then maybe there's an end, but most open theists think the time continues on in the afterlife. Mm. Then there's always going to be more possibilities, more freedom. And right. so um, saying God can win or will win as if God can crunch all the numbers and know all the possible moves, that seems to be problematic in a truly mm. open future. So one way to fix that, and this is not my view, but this is what some do, is they'll say, well, God generally typically doesn't intervene to control, but at the eschaton, God is going to kick some butt and make a decision. And then, you know, there won't be free choice at that point, at least for a, at the end of the age. And then maybe free choice will start again. But in some way, mm. God's going to make a decisive closure on things. Yeah. I don't like that view because that implies God has the kind of power to control evil and isn't doing so right now. Yeah. So I'm not a Clark Pinnock is, would be a person who likes that kind of an option. I've, I think I've read a book of his uh, quite early on. Does he, has he written on uh, open theism? Would that be? Oh yes. Yeah. He's correct. one of the main person here in the States on open theism. Right. I think it was Greg Boyd that put me onto him somehow. And I think yes. Greg was very clear in saying, I don't agree with everything he writes, but here's a good person to check out. I think I met, I talked to him on Twitter about it or something like that. And he said, like, go and read this book. Or whatever. And yeah. I think, and I remember reading that. I'm like, this doesn't really fit with most of my other theology, if I'm honest. So <laughs> the biggest problem I have is, is the obstacle of my eschatology, my, my afterlife, yeah. all sorts of different things planning out. Um, but the, the concept of God, um, I guess, understanding probabilities and things like that, that, very much uh, I could imagine plays out in our day-to-day -day concepts of what this looks like, right? And so that, um, I don't know, maybe there is, I don't know, someone's going to make some really terrible decisions in their life and God's hanging out with me in the morning and maybe I'm a good Christian boy and I'm doing my quiet time and praying and I'm going, God, what do you want me to do today? And he says, oh, I want you to get in your car and drive that way. And I somehow stop some sort of calamity or because he knows what well, the probabilities are. If you get in your car, after you talk with me, I can shift and I can talk and encourage you to make a choice. Like to me, that makes life a lot more exciting in a sense, right? I mean, because God <laughs> yeah. suddenly steps in and I'm like, what's happening next? And he's like, I don't know, but I've got some ideas, you know, as opposed to, 
all right, I've pre-planned absolutely everything out. And even though you're even asking me, I knew you were going to ask me and you were going to do this either way. Or like, it feels kind of feels boring for God. Yeah. Do you ever think about that kind of dynamic as Definitely. well? Like, it's like watching a movie like a billion times or something. I, I, do you know what I mean? It's this kind of dynamic, but it becomes very exciting suddenly when you kind of whittle it down into, so how does, and again, there's multiple views of open theism and we probably could go into a lot of that because that sounds fascinating. And I'm not as aware of, I, even in reading different people, I've probably just lumped them into one group and not really picked up on the nuances. Yeah. Um, but at least for you, how, how has this shifted how you've engaged with God and lived in a kind of more nitty gritty day-to-day life? Has it changed how you do things day in, day out? Tons of things, tons, tons, tons. Yeah. Um, for one thing, open theism in general just makes a lot more sense with how most of us live our daily lives. Like when I give lectures at universities or churches or conferences, I almost always have someone come up afterwards and say something like this. What you've just been talking about makes so much sense to me and I've already believed it, but I've never Mm -hmm. had the words to articulate it. It just works with the way I live my life. And that is thinking that we have real freedom, but not freedom to do anything. It's limited, but it's genuine freedom. That our choices make a difference. It affects our lives and others. We live in an interrelated world. That God's a God of love who's not in the business of kicking our butt and torturing us. All these things that just kind of fits the way most people think. But the one that probably has made the biggest difference to me lately is, uh, and I talk about it some at the end of chapter five in God Can't, is the idea that God really needs us. Hmm. A lot of theologians today want to get away from the God who predestines everything, but they also want to retain a God who's got the kind of omnipotent power to fix things single-handedly sometime in the future. And this God, from their perspective, invites you and me to participate in what God's doing in the world, but it really doesn't matter if we participate, at least not in the ultimate scheme of things, because most of these people are kind of universalists, and everybody's going to go to heaven anyway, and God's got this plan, and God can kick butt if God wants to. And so you get the impression that even though God is inviting us to participate, it really doesn't matter if we cooperate because mm. yeah. God's going to get the job done anyway. Yeah. And he'd probably my... do it better without us, right? A bit like exactly. a parent like going, hey, kiddo, do you want to bake some cookies with me? And you're like, these cookies are not going to be good now. But right. they'll, they'll rescue them. You know, yeah, they'll, they'll make it work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we Until know that the, kid... the parent can cook the cookies all right. <laughs> yeah. And then the kid gets old enough to figure that out. And there's like, okay, you know, why am I cooking why don't you cook? You do a better job. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, 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 uh, maybe it's not quite the right words or there's maybe some components of intent behind it, but it feels quite condescending in a sense, doesn't yes. it? Yes. You know, it cause it's like this, Oh, Hey kiddo, you want to help me out? You know? And it's like, really, you want me to help you? Do you need me to help you? Or are you just trying to molly coddling, you know, trying to placate me so i've got something to do because i want to go play on the xbox really you know (laughs) (laughs) and interestingly that word condescending is exactly the word theologians have used to talk about god's relation to the world god Mm. condescended to do something and i don't like it at all Um, Mm. my view says something that will sound radical to some people but reassuring to others 
it says that in order for love to win now and in the future, you and I and creation actually have to cooperate with God. Mm. Our lives matter. We're ultimately significant. Things can't be done that God wants to see done unless we cooperate. Mm. Now, when I say that in a public audience, I can almost see by the body responses to people how they're affected. Yeah. Like a certain portion of the audience, their shoulders go back and they're like, yeah, I've always kind of thought my life mattered. And now here's a theology that affirms that. Yeah. And then other people, their shoulders kind of slump and they're like, you got to be kidding me. What I do matters. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> you know? And so I try to tell the, the second group of people that, you know, you're not carrying the whole world on your shoulders. Mm. God's calling you to do something particular to you and your abilities right here and right now. What you do matters. Your response matters, but don't think that the whole world is on your shoulders. Mm. And not only is God calling you to do something, God also is empowering you to respond to that call. You just mm. have to cooperate. But the overall point to your question, yes, this affects the way I think about my life and what I do day to day. Mm. That's really interesting. Like, I know for me, uh, when I started talking a bit about open theism here and there, and I, I used to help teach in a school, like um, a ministry school, and I, I do a session every year on on this uh, uh, to much of people's existential crises. Um, but uh, <laughs> one of the things, like, I remember early on going, when I first came across this thing, I was like, I don't know what I believe about this. I just really don't know, but it sounds compelling. And I was like, you know what, God? I'm just going to live as though open theism is a thing for about a month. Let's just see how it feels. And that's yeah. genuinely, I was like very much like, eh, God's a big boy, girl, whatever, you know, they'll survive. Yeah. They'll be okay with <laughs> Phil going off the rails for a month, you know, just <laughs> testing it out, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I, I genuinely, this is the kind of stuff that really um, hit me is suddenly uh, regardless of where I've ended up now, even I can look back at the, that trial period and go whoa, my day-to-day -day life, it meant something. And I really felt that like in every action, I, I felt, no, I say in every action, every action when I was awake enough to be aware of what was going sure, on and actually sure, think sure. about it, right? Um, which is probably about four times a day if I was lucky. <laughs> but, you know, in, in every moment where I was thinking and I was aware of like, huh, okay, God, what's happening? Where are we going? What do you need? What do, th there was a much greater reality of god's presence in, in amongst mm -hmm. it wasn't that he was up in the sky as a puppeteer it wasn't that he was the uh, um the angel on my shoulder going phil no 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 please don't do that don't do that don't do that you know or whatever mm -hmm. um it, god was there he was like dude well you know we could do this or this i what do you think you know it was really yeah. and i'm like i know what do you think you're god what's the best option he's like well maybe b but you do what you want and we'll figure it out and like it yeah. was really exciting it came to life this this concept think about yeah. the difference between that view that you're describing we'll call it the openness view here just because that's the way we've been talking sure and the view that um some people have of a god who's sovereignly in control of everything um people who have that kind of a view really emphasize obedience mm. like god said it you have to obey you have to do it because and not because there's some sort of reason but god said it mm. period end of yep. sentence but if you're an open theist 
and you think God is calling you to, I don't know, care for the earth, you're doing it not because, not only because God is calling you to, but because you think your, your actions might actually make a difference in what the overall yeah. scope of things is all about. And there's a kind of a purpose, which means you have to think about, first of all, if you're understanding God, you're discerning what the Spirit's doing, but also then what that means in terms of how I'm going to, you know, I guess I was talking about the planet. So how am I going to act toward the planet? And my, how am I going to uh, care for creation and all the kinds of things we, we would want to talk about there? So there's a lot more real investment on who I am and how I'm responding and what I'm doing than the view that, well, God's in control and we're just supposed to obey. I mean, you mm. still have problems discerning what God wants in that view, but um, sure, of course, uh, <laughs> I mean, we're but, we all got voices in our heads, right? At the end of the day, yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. just a, a very different, um, different kind. I, I, I guess I can't. One of the values of open theism is it really works well with love metaphors, love in a like a partnership or mm. family, you know, like. I don't want my kids just to obey me because they're a pit and they're afraid I'll, I'll beat them if they don't. I yeah. want my kids to obey me because they realize that's a good idea, dad, and this is going to make it better for everybody. And that's yeah. the difference I think between open theism and sort of this top down sovereignly in control kind of God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even possibly a little more controversial, but I, I'm sure you probably wouldn't disagree. Like on a whole nother level, I don't want my kids to obey me all the time. Sometimes I'm like, dude, that's a cool idea. You, yeah. you went on a whole another way. It's probably not the choice I would have made, but that's, that's awesome. I'm really excited to see how it pans out for you. Like, you know, and you're going to learn something through this or, yes. you know, like there's an element of at times, that's not the important thing that we're doing my dictated plan, you know, like, right. I think right. most parents on some level are going, yeah, of course, I'm not like, trying to strong arm my kid into becoming a doctor or an engineer, but we all have that moment of like, Oh, bummer. They've chose to be an artist or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How am I going to pay for retirement now? You know? Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, yeah, I, I think that this concept of obedience is a really fascinating one. Once you start kind of like um, peeling back the layers, you know, even th that concept of God being like, well, you need to obey me. And that's the way it is. Yes. Like, well, if I don't, is that because you predestined me to disagree with your <laughs> yeah. demands and therefore was yeah. I going to do that? And, you know, it's, it's a whole can of worms that you just kind of endlessly keep opening, isn't it? Um, yeah, there's another way to think about this that, that I sometimes will talk about. Um, and that is, if you have the view that God is foreknown and predestined everything and God has a will for you, it's probably going to be one single action each moment that God wants you to do. But if you have the idea that the future is open, God is calling you to do what's loving, beautiful, flourishing, mm. it could be that there are multiple options that are just as good as the other. Yeah. And so being an artist or a doctor might be overall, you know, the possibilities for flourishing and well-being and to use Christian language, the kingdom of God in his, in his fulfillment might still be there. God can't know with certainty. Now, God knows that, you know, you being a pimp, or a drug dealer, though that's not going to promote the kingdom. But there are lots of other options that might be relatively similar in value. And so you kind of can be free to explore in mm. a way that you don't feel free if you think God's got that one thing that you got to figure out what you need to do in the next moment, that one person you're supposed to marry, that one career you're supposed to have, whatever. Mm. 
It's really interesting. How do you think, um, this is something I'm fascinated by, and I guess different open theists will engage with this quite differently, um, just based on the couple of things you said so far, but how do you um, incorporate or reconcile the concepts of prophecy into all of this? Yeah, there are different views, but I can, I can give you kind of a general thing. First of all, the first statement would be not something that just open theists would say, but most scholars, Christian and Jewish scholars would say, they would say the vast majority of prophecy in the Bible is not predictive prophecy. It's prophecy in which the prophet stands up and says, look, people, you guys are following idols. You're sinning. Uh, you need to change. Otherwise, things are going to suck. God's not mm -hmm. happy about this. Now, you don't have to know the future with certainty to yep. know that sin That will pan out at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but there is a narrower section of passages in scripture that sound more predictive. Now, in those passages, the majority of those are God saying, I'm going to do something in the future. I'm mm. going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, God can have plans to do something in the future and not know the future exhaustively. Mm. But there are a small number of passages that are predictive prophecies that seem to have to do with something creatures are going to do. And it sounds like somehow God foreknows it's all going to take place. My favorite illustration of this is Jesus saying to Peter, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. That's a great example. Man, that sounds so specific, you know, and, and, you know, setting aside the question of whether or not Jesus has foreknowledge. But let's just say at the moment, Jesus could at least access the divine mind and God has exhaustive foreknowledge. Sure. Well, that would seem to be a, an argument for that view. Now, open theists have particular ways of handling that. Greg Boyd's got certain ways. Sometimes people will say, well, that's just a colloquial colloquialism. I can't even say the word, mm. uh, you know, that the cock crows twice. It's kind of like a saying. Other people will say, well, you know, Jesus knew Peter so well that Jesus could predict it. I don't, I don't actually buy the usual, <laughs> the usual solutions that open theists put up here. I say about that verse, that just doesn't fit open theism very well. Mm. But I think the majority of the Bible does fit open theism right. well. So I don't think every last little bit of scripture has to tie in nicely together into a sure. systematic theology. Do you, um, do you think with something like that, it's probably a lot more likely that uh, within the author of the gospel, he's, he's writing a narrative, he's writing something that plays out, he's, he's trying to make it like, you know, dramatic, fit, wonderful. Um, he, you know, even if you look at something like 70 AD prophecy or something, it's like, well, it's written after 70 AD, you know, like it's like, yeah, exactly, things yeah. like this, you're like, well, yes, but, oh, I mean, none of these uh, authors of the gospels actually walked with Jesus day and day out anyway. So, I mean, like, were they there detailing this exact 70 AD or is this yeah, past? You know, so there's a lot of these yeah. dynamics in play as well, I'm sure, um, that maybe I, some more literists probably aren't going to be yes. happy with. But, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah, those are always tools you can bring into the conversation, and I'm quite willing to do so. Mm. Um, but I, my main point is, I think open theism can account for the vast majority of prophecy in the scripture, the stuff that isn't predictive, the stuff that is predictive. But there are some things that open theism I don't think accounts well for, and I'm fine with that. I can live with that because I think it accounts for the majority better than the idea that God somehow foreknows everything into the future. Mm. 
that's really interesting yeah i've done it's, it's a whole world i've probably not delved nearly deep enough in i kind of studied it for maybe like you know five six little books or things like that and then put together a little introduction and said here's here's some ideas here's some thoughts um here's how to kind of understand baseline what it is now go and read all the books i read and more <laughs> um, yeah. so it, it's really interesting to pick your brains on this so i know that you are gearing up to release uh, and by the time this comes out it's probably coming out in about three weeks when's your book coming out about then you know i'm say? not exactly sure but sometime in july so okay so uh, this might on come the out cusp. before yeah. um, but you're gearing up to release and it's a follow-up to your book god Kent. is that right that's right yeah the the title is questions and answers for god can't and it's uh nine chapters in which i address some of the main questions i get from people who send me you know facebook messages emails or people who come to my lectures or mm. you know whatever uh things like um you know how can you believe in miracles if god can't control how should you pray if god can't control what about eschatology how do you understand God's action? Where does Jesus fit into all this? Those kinds of things. Mm. And so I tried to write this book in very accessible way, kind of like I did God Can't. It may be a little more technical than God Can't, but it's still sure. pretty accessible. Well, people are, people are begging you to dig down into the nitty gritty a bit that's more. That's right. Yeah. So you have to kind of on some level. Yeah, you know, that's right. That's, that's fascinating because I'm like, this is my first thought as well when I'm like, look at this. I, you present a new idea and I'm like, oh, I've got some questions. I've got some ideas. I'm trying to think on other people's behalfs, but you have yes. been asked these questions more than anyone probably. Yeah, uh, well, like, hey, I read your book. Them. What the heck do you do with this? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and it gets to the point. I, I, I know I get a lot of messages about stuff I've said and they're like, well, what about this? And what about that? And you get to the point where you're like, right, I've answered this email 28 times. I'm not doing it 29 time. I'm just going to write a whole thing. I'll copy and paste it each time. Or <laughs> so you, yeah. you get to the point where like, I'm just going to write a book. <laughs> um, and so it's it's fascinating thinking about these concepts. Um, you know, like something like miracles. How, how do you how do you go into that? How, how, because I mean, I can understand at a very cursory level, uh, like a, 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 a surface level. Um, you've got okay. Well, God needs to work through us. So, like you know, yes, this person needs healing, and um, God wants to heal them. That's His desire, but He can't heal them. He can't just like storm in and ruin this guy's day by healing him. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. how does that? Because at a certain point, even when we're involved, there's a God going. All right, let's let's make this happen. And there's plenty yeah. of times where we're involved and that person's involved and it doesn't happen as well. That's that right. Yes. Yeah. Do, do you You're, wrestle with that? You are working exactly in the direction that I want to work. So one of the big issues is I want to return this back to the idea that God can't single-handedly bring about results. So any miracle that occurs in the world can't just be God acting alone. There either has to be cooperation from creatures or in the case of inanimate creatures, there has to be the conditions of creation have to be conducive for the miracle to occur. But this also overcomes the problem of blaming the victim, you know, the mm. cancer patient who's been yeah. praying and cooperating as best this person knows how, but they still have cancer. Uh, it overcomes that by saying, look, you've got agents and factors and actors in your body that you can't control and neither can God. So while your cooperation might be the you know key in some instances your body might not be cooperating in others so mm. it kind of lays out all these kinds of factors to bring into the the to account for why sometimes there are miracles but oftentimes there are not miracles mm. so yeah you'll have to get the book 
Oh, no, I know. I'm fascinated. <laughs> my first thought in that is like, yeah, that makes sense. I was involved with the charismatic movement for a long time and I've been Me involved too, yeah. in, you know, Pentecost, uh, but Pentecost, um, yeah, <laughs> a whole bunch of different uh, movements. Um, and just the nature of what I do, I work with people in lots of different backgrounds, but that concept starts to line up and make sense to me. I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I get that, I get that. But yeah. Jesus had a bloody high success rate, didn't he? And so it's like, if we're just, if we're going, well, okay, so I believe in healing and I'm gonna, you know, rumba shamba over this person and, you know, and, and pray for healing over them. And they are going, I want to be healed. I give you all full access, right? There's no controlling yes. issues here. God, heal me up. And it doesn't click. Surely those two components mean that okay so it's something else we're talking something physiologically we're talking right. i don't know necessarily i'm not a, a medic so i couldn't go into the details of what that might look like um but surely jesus had those issues as well how, how would you yeah what's really interesting is how that works once i started really looking at this carefully like I, i'm like you i used to be a healing evangelist and pray for okay, people nice. and you know be all into that sort of stuff uh, but once I came back to it with this uncontrolling love perspective, I saw things in the gospel I never noticed before. Like Jesus goes to the pool of Bethsaida where all these people are invalids. That's the way usually um, English translators translate. translate the Greek. And he only heals one guy. Mm. <laughs> all these people are there and Jesus only heals one. And even that one, it's a second try. He puts mud on his eyes and he doesn't get it the first time round. Jesus goes to many places, according to Mark, and the all and one one particular passage in the book that I've just written, it says all of the people sick people were brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed many. Mm. Not all, many. Mm. And my favorite passage is when Jesus goes to his hometown and doesn't heal because they don't have faith. It's explicit yeah. there. So once I had this kind of lens on my eyes of uncontrolling love, I started noticing lots of times in which people weren't healed, or at least not everybody was healed. Mm. And I thought, oh, the Bible doesn't actually present Jesus as this healing machine who just knocks them down one by one and cleans up all the time. Yeah, There's actually more going on here than That's I realized. It's amazing how a hermeneutic can do that, can't it? It just kind yes. of creates this like blinders i see that oh yeah it's there 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 and there clearly yeah. uh, we all do it yeah. you know i mean we all do it um but yeah, sometimes when i'm i sometimes when i speak i'll make a a big wager i'll say i've got a thousand dollars to give to anyone here tonight who can find one passage in the entire bible that explicitly says god controlled to make something happen and there was no creaturely contribution by agents or factors in creation. Nothing. Mm. Uh, give me one from the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the creation of the world, to the resurrection of Jesus, to the miracles. Like I'll say, you, you, you give me one. And what people will do is they'll start throwing out examples. You know, what about Jesus walking on water? And I'll say, does it explicitly say creation didn't cooperate? Now I'm not saying I've got all these perfect under uh, uh, um, explanations. I actually do have some explanations, but uh, I'm not saying I've got all these explanations, but I'm saying, does the text require us mm. to think that God controls in a single-handed way? We come to the Bible with these assumptions, and I used to have them as well. 
that, okay, maybe God doesn't control everybody, but God could if God wanted to. And look, there's an example that only mentions God. That must have been a controlling event when the Bible doesn't explicitly say that. Hmm. Yeah, no, we're, we're really, really good at that. I'm very good at it, certainly. We all are, yeah. It's just, it's just the nature of being human. We have assumptions. Yeah. Wow. So how do you, you know, let's, let's go right back to the, 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 the young guy coming out of college, going to his pastor, going, I'm not sure what I think about Jesus. Now, now you're kind of like fast forward into the future, and here we are. Um, yeah. And who knew? God didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, we're here, and, and the, the pastor, you know, you, you decide, oh, I'm going to jack this in and go to become an associate pastor again, or youth pastor. The pastor goes, but what's the deal with open theism and Jesus? And how, how does you know, this concept of, of God coming to earth in the right time and the right way to save all of humanity, whatever that means, you know, there's obviously 110 different dynamics of what Jesus's life means that we could go into, but there, it feels like the, the predominant narrative across most of Christianity is that this was very foreknown. He was going to do it on some level. God knew I'm going to come to earth as a man. Um, and do my thing, whatever his thing was. Uh, we could probably go for that forever, but uh, you know that's probably not the, the area to focus on. But like, is that is that falling into the prophecy area again, where it's well, it's not massively specific? God could have just gone. Yeah, this feels like a good time. Let's just dive in here. Mary seems cool. Um, you know, there's no consent jokes there. Um, but <laughs> uh, you know, like, let's just make it happen here. Let's let's bring Jesus. Is that kind of how you would see things, or is there? Or is there exceptions to the rule? It sounds like you're not very wavering on exceptions to the rules. You're no, very much I, like, no, this I, is the way it works and it's what works. Yeah, it's not so much that I've got all the answers. It's more that I want a consistent and coherent theology. I yeah. get sick and tired of people playing mystery cards left and right when the theology runs into a brick wall. And I don't want to, I don't want to allow that for others. So I don't want to allow it for myself. So what I want to do is maybe this is the way to think about it, Phil. I want to take the logic of love and play it out through every dimension of reality and theology all the way down the line. Mm -hmm. So you bring up Mary. You know, most people don't even, rec don't even um, acknowledge that Mary says, be it unto me. She's a cooperative agent here. Mm. This isn't the spirit unilaterally, you know, this is non, this is not, non-consensual sex, <laughs> at least not according to the passage. Yep. So, so once you have that logic of love in place, like I'm trying to do, mm. then you're reading through the scriptures and you're saying, okay, what fits here and what doesn't? And the stuff that doesn't, is it not fitting because I have these assumptions that I could rearrange or is there really just a contradiction here? And to be honest, I haven't found very many contradictions. The best, mm. the, the clearest contradictions I find in the Bible, to my view, are views in which God is simply portrayed as unloving. It's not mm. a, a, an issue of power. It's an issue of God, of the writers thinking that God wants them to bash their enemies' babies' heads against the rocks. Mm. There are those passages in Scripture, and I don't want to sugarcoat those. But I think the majority of scripture points to a God of love. And the main themes, even in the Old Testament, point to this God of steadfast love. And of course, Jesus, I think, is the best representation. So all that to say, what I'm trying to do when it comes to prophecy, 
when it comes to the incarnation, eschatology, is ask myself the questions of love. And for the most part, things line up. I mm. think I have a theology that's consistent. I wouldn't say that my theology fits every passage of scripture because of what I've already said about some portraying God as unloving. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really, really interesting. I I, I grew up in a very uh, mixed bag, but at one point I was very much in a very fundamental movement of kind of brethren, ex-brethren, but they were ex-brethren solely because they just didn't want to tie to the brethren like institution, but they still wanted to be brethren. So very yeah. brethren, very kind of uh, very Calvinistic, very five point. Um, and uh, it, it was fascinating to me that their position on, you know, what is good and what is love was very much like, well, what God does. That's what love is. Yeah. So you yeah. could, I, I know he's, he says, kill everyone here, man, woman, child, and then, oh, keep the young females and rape them. That's fine. You know, yeah. that's love. That's good. Yep. God said it. Um, and uh, I know earlier you said that's kind of like not the not the dynamic you would work with it because it just introduces <laughs> this kind of like weird arbitrary mystery of like, well, if I can exactly. find a loophole at some point in the scripture where, oh, God's pro-killing people. Oh, God's pro-rape yep. in this scenario. Oh, well, then in some ways that will be good at times. You know, you get to the point where you're John Calvin, uh, John, Cal John, uh, easy mistake, John Piper, you know, going, oh, yeah, well, the two towers going down was a good thing. God, God ordained it. Supposed to be that's the way it is. Um, it becomes this very arbitrary thing. So when you're you're constantly measuring everything by this this um, this foundational belief that God is to be measured by love, God is to be measured as a good right. God. I How think John you... Piper is a good. Well, before you ask the question, let me quickly throw in something. I think John Piper is a really good example here because I admire John Piper's rational consistency he's very I consistent i think his theology sucks it's horrific but i try to also be consistent it's just that i have a different fundamental starting point mm -hmm. it's the starting points of love and because of that i'm willing to make some moves some people think are really radical like god can't do some things i actually think i can support them biblically but it sounds really radical to most people. Mm. But I share in Piper's vision that I want a coherent theology that doesn't throw mystery cards left and right yeah. when we come up against hard questions. Yeah. No, I often say on this podcast, people will get sick fed up of me saying it, but I, I really uh, admire people like Piper. I admire people like Westboro Baptist. I mean, some of the worst kind of theological outplays you could have. But I'm yep. like, dang, do they believe what they believe? And are they on it like you know what i mean when, when when some tragedy happens i know what john piper's gonna say because i know what yeah. john piper believes i've read like seven eight of his books i know what he believes i was a good brother i was a good like yep. you know five point calvinist i i i follow piper and mark driscoll and all these guys i i know i know um and yeah that's piper's not gonna not change gonna, unless piper's he has a radical shift <laughs> yeah we're gonna get He's the same party line yeah, he's not going to stand up and say, well, God didn't want this to happen, but he allowed it. No, nope. he's going no, to say, this is sovereign happen. will of God, you know, that those people got killed in the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Who I knows? Maybe he'll read your book. Maybe the next time it is, the tweet is, well, you know, I mean, God can't do some stuff. You know, that would be a tweet. You know? <laughs> That's right. I love yeah. it. Um, so but my question was, and I think this it's a fascinating question because I think we all, um, we all do this with our own, um, 
lenses and our own abilities and our own uh, subjective frailties. But how do you draw these lines? Because on some level, you know, you go, well, we don't like the mystery of going, well, is, is, is this murder good or is it a bad murder? I don't know. It depends because God likes and hates murder. Uh, it just depends what page you turn to. And yeah. we, we can all kind of have certain benchmarks for what is love and what is good that we're measuring God to. And we're creating this framework and going, OK, cool. So he obviously can't do certain things because this is my concept of love. Um, how do you underpin that? You know, I know lots of people would point to different concepts within the scriptures, with the scriptures, their own kind of morality of humans on a more metaphysical level, the concept of ethics and morals. Like, how do you kind of draw the line in the sand for that? Because it's, it's a yeah. complex thing, right? I mean, the, the Westboro Baptists, they would say it's loving to go and, you know, I don't know, call people horrific things or pick at a funeral. And they really believe that's love. Now, presumably that's not your conclusion. You, you've not, no, you've not decided not. <laughs> on the same kind of scenario because their love is like, what's, uh, what's true or, you know, or uh, yeah. I don't know how they quite get to that at times, but you know, um, we all do it different ways, I guess is my point. You know, you can be an abusive father and think that's loving. Um, yeah. Well, my, I think what you're fundamentally asking me is what, theologians would say, what's my theological method? That is, uh, how do I decide what things I think are right, wrong, true, best, worst, whatever? Um, and I think I'll answer that in two ways. One is to say, I've really been influenced by what in theology people call the quadrilateral, named after John Wesley. And for those of your listeners who never heard of that, that's basically a way of saying that when it comes to trying to figure out who God is, what God wants, how we ought to live in the world, understand theology, we ought to draw from the Bible, that's one, the tradition, that's the second, reason, third, and experience, fourth. Mm. Now, this is something that emerged in the 20th century. John Wesley never used the word quadrilateral. In fact, he never used all four of those things together. But what people begin to realize is that when we do theology, we're drawing from a variety of sources, trying to make sense of things. And um, I, I like that approach. Now, let me say that the mirror of that in the sciences is the scientific method. That is, um, I think good science makes inferences. It looks at data, it has theories, it tries to propose a most plausible theory, not knowing with certainty it's the right one, always being open to adjustment, giving new data, new experiences that come down the line. And so both of these work together then to try to make sense of reality, always making adjustments. Mm. And one of the big pieces that will distinguish me from the Westboro Baptists is this idea of what experience is, that our experience of what love is, isn't killing people, isn't pulling, putting up signs saying God hates fags at the funerals of homosexual people, whatever. Um, so there's a kind of drawn upon our experience of life that's going to play a, a role, not the only role, but mm -hmm. a role in my theological method of trying to construct the best overall theology. But I'm not going to say, hey, I've got it finally worked out. Here it all is. I've deduced it down to these six principles. I do have certain principles, but they're always open to adjustment. Mm. There's always open to change because I think I'm always trying to learn new things. Sure. Yeah, because I think the thing that fascinates me about this is that when I think about how I love, even just how I love my wife, that has changed over the years. And she is thankful 
very, very it thankful. It better have changed. <laughs> yeah. And she's maybe yeah. at times very dis- dismayed that it's changed in other ways. But, but on the whole, the, the way it changes yeah. is I realize, oh gosh, this way of acting towards this other person, it's not very loving. I need to reevaluate who I am and how I operate. And, and so there's this element of a subjectivity of what I understand to be loving and um, and, and an awareness to be able to learn afresh, oh, this might be more loving to do it a different way, a different idea. So that, yes, textually, I can argue my love right now. But in five years, when my love changes, I'll still be able to point to the text. I'll just probably use different ones or, or interpret them differently. And yes, I can point to the tradition and I can go, oh, yeah, within orthodoxy, this is what love looks like. But so could the Westboro Baptist Church probably on some level, yeah. right? I mean, you know, and so well, this is and it's not like the tradition has just one view. I mean, the exactly, tradition right? is diverse. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. I, I guess it's it's such a complex, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a very complex thing. So I, I was fascinated to hear your thought. I, I first came across that um, the quadrilateral kind of um, concept through uh, Michael Harden's book, The Jesus Driven Life. I don't know if you've read it. It's phenomenal. Oh, I know I know uh, of him, but I haven't read that book. His his book is the number one book I recommend. Like really, as as, huh. it's it, I, I say it often he doesn't mind me saying it, but I'm like it's one of the hardest books I've ever waded through. As far as huh. um, it was not written at fifth grade, uh, you know, <laughs> reading level, and it's not it's not hard to read either. It's just fairly easy to read. But for some reason, I'm like God. This is taking me. I, I'm having to revisit. Mm. I'm having to read over and over. But it's a very very good book. But he explores that um, as his hermeneutic is very much good. grounded in God is looks like Jesus. That, that, yeah. that God is redefined in Jesus, and Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand and goes, "Look at this old text. You have people's opinion, God's opinion of Himself." Yeah, they're very much intermingled until you bring Jesus into play and kind of allow him to divide that kind of read backwards kind of concepts and all this. But even stuff. then, I mean, we have different views of Jesus, so it's not like Jesus so provides complex, right? crystal clarity. <laughs> yeah, so we keep bringing in all these different things. You've got the scripture, you've got the, the historical Jesus, you've got you know uh, the, the yes. traditional uh, concept of Jesus. You have all these different things, and it's it's such a i don't want to be a, a modernistic nihilistic kind of like there, there is nothing but subjectivity um, no. but at the end of the day there, there there is on some level nothing but subjectivity and so it, it can be problematic and so i was wondering how you kind of um draw your lines in the sands and figure that out and, and i guess as your concepts of love have evolved i guess that's probably not going to play too much into your open theism because of the the dynamic of love not being controlling is is a fairly kind of solid principle it's probably not going to shift too much i imagine um, but yeah. no i i think uh love being uncontrolling um it fits nicely with open theism but um mm. you could you could be an open theist and think that god's love sometimes meant controlling others sure. i don't think that's the case but um, you could be an open theist there yeah. um yeah i was going to make a comment about your 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 what i would call the questions of relativism mm. and that is you know whether or not everything is subjective to my own way of looking at the world i i like to make a distinction between extreme relativism and relativism relativism that takes into account multiple perspectives yeah i think we all ought to be relativists in that sense but extreme relativism says there's no objective standards or no anything that one uh will must or can embrace that can be universal in some sense. Mm. And I actually think there's some universals, at least universals in terms of how we live our lives, maybe not universals in, in particular propositions. And let me give you a few of them just to throw them out there. Yeah. Here's one. 
every person I know believes there's good and worse. We have lots of differences of opinions on what the good and worse are, mm. but that there is values in the world, some of which are better and worse. We all have that fundamental assumption. I call it an experiential non-negotiable. Mm. Here's another one. Every person I know thinks there's a world beyond their minds. They're not what we call in philosophy solipsists. Now they may walk around saying they're a solipsist, but the way they act shows that they actually don't believe that because their actions betray that they think there is a world and you punch them in the nose and they say, ouch. Mm. Or how about another one? This is more controversial. Every person I know thinks they have some degree of choice in a, in a particular moment, something like freedom. Even those people who say they're totally determined by their genes or by God or by what everybody acts as if they themselves or other people have some measure of freedom hmm. so that when you have a politician who does something, people don't say, oh man, his genes determined him to do that. No, they act as if he could have done something else and he had a real free choice to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> yeah. So again, now we'll have all kinds of differences of opinion on how much freedom we have, or at particular times, looking at others, whether or not they were mostly shaped by their environment. There's all kinds of variables, but there are these, what I call experiential non-negotiables. We all live our lives as if these things are true, even if we might verbally say they're not true. Yeah. That gets us out of extreme relativism without thinking there's all these absolutes and these everybody just, you know, should know what they are and they, they control us. It provides plenty of space for differences of opinions and relativism in a non-extreme way. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I, I think that's, uh, it's, it's ultimately all we can do is, is accept that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm subjective and I can't experience the world apart from this subject. Yes. But um, apart from me, maybe presuming that I'm in a mental or I, I'm just like some, uh, being that has imagined this whole thing in this whole world, apart from imagining that and assuming that you are a you, <laughs> um, well, now I have two subjective beings that can yes. share their subjectivity and now we're a little less subjective on some level. Yeah. Um, yes. and, and the more I can do that, the more I can spread the load, right? I mean, that's part of one of the beauties of looking at, um, you know, you look at the, the, the four views, you go, oh, we can look at tradition. We can look at how thousands yeah. and millions of people have lived their lives and experienced this across the world. Yeah, it's very varied, but oh, there's a lot of common themes in here that people yes. generally speaking are going, yeah, we think this is probably the way it works. Um, yep. I think that's a, a huge kind of equalizer in, in a lot of ways. Do you think those are timeless or do you think those are often, uh, I, I guess, different depending on different uh, examples that you might give, but I guess I'm thinking. I actually think those are things. metaphysically timeless. You yeah. do, yeah. Timelessness, not timeless, like in the sense of like, I mean, like, for instance, I think cause and effect is metaphysically necessary, but by definition, I think it's timeful. I mean, there's a cause and an effect, so that's a sequential. One percent. So, if you mean by timeless, like these are true of any possible world, mm. yeah, I think there are some things that are true of all possible worlds. Yeah, because yeah. I'm just very aware that there's certain things. This is one of the reasons I love philosophy, and this is something my wife introduced me to talking to philosophy and her background's that, and um, and her her dad's got you know like a I think a master's in philosophy, and then he went on to do like 
PhD in like astrophysics. I mean, the guy's crazy smart. <laughs> so around their kitchen table, you know, for lunch and stuff, he'd be like, here's a thing we're going to discuss is goods a thing you know or whatever and this is how they grew up you know so i'm like yeah, oh man <laughs> this is how i wanted to grow up i did not grow up that way <laughs> we grew up going here's the thing we're all gonna fight and whoever wins gets the last bread roll you know I mean, that's how we that's our dinner table um, but uh, you know so she introduced me to um i guess the concept that, that, that there were first thoughts and so there's this moment where you can look throughout history and someone goes yeah what if everything's made of little things and then suddenly we can't not think that way. Uh, and oh. so there's a brand new way of exploring the world that we can't even, it's really hard for us to go beyond that initial thought and, and enter into the mind of those prior to that. And, and good example, this is maybe um, you try and teach your kids what numbers are and it's so freaking frustrating because you can't conceptualize not understanding that's one that's two. This is really yeah. easy, Timmy. Get it together, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, but they're like, what are you talking about? They, they might think, oh, yeah. so you're saying that's red and that's blue. Or, you know, they don't know what numbers are yet. Um, and that's and so a we, great example. We can't oh, go boy. back to that. Sorry. So I guess I'm just, I'm intrigued by how many things we presume. Oh, yeah. Everyone thinks this. Everyone thinks there's some sort of consciousness. Well, that's fascinating. But did we always? And uh, will we always? And so I, I'm yeah. fascinated by some of these um, components as well. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. or, or I Yeah, I, I don't think we can know with certainty these, what I call non-negotiable, experiential non-negotiables. But I think we are foolish to pretend that they don't affect the way mm. they live our lives. Um, it's what um, Jürgen, or, uh, Jürgen Habermas calls them, um, um, performative contradictions. Uh, I, well, I'm, I won't go down the philosophy road, but just, just to say, um, these do seem to be the way that we live our lives. And if we're going to construct some kind of philosophy or theology or explanation for things, we're really foolish if we ignore the things we all ine inevitably do in our actions. Mm. We need to incorporate those. That doesn't, again, make it a totally complete system, but we need to incorporate them in our project. Yeah, that's really great. So we should probably start wrapping up, but I mean, I've absolutely <laughs> loved this. And I feel like I could just pick oh, yeah. your brain on, uh, on 110 <laughs> different uh, concepts. Um, for those that want to go deeper, so obviously they should pick up your book, God Can, and they should pick up the follow-up to answer all the questions that they have after reading God Can. <laughs> Thank um, you. Uh, and that's available, you know, beginning of July, everywhere amazon kindle audio audible and all that kind of stuff yep, all that stuff. um you've Act presumably written on this in other places on blogs you've probably done some interviews and stuff that people might be able to find on youtube and stuff is that yeah fair to say if they kind of google written, your name they'll come some stuff yeah i've written or edited 25 books and so you'll find some of this and some of those but <laughs> also work cut out for them if they want to go deep <laughs> <laughs> that's right probably the easiest and and you know in terms of time if you just sort of go on my website and do a search function and you you're likely to find uh, some of the the answers or topics at least that you want to explore and my website is my full name which is thomas j ord and j is j a y o o r d dot com Right. But there's actually something else. And this is, I'm not just going to say this for your listeners, but this might interest you as well, Phil. Sure. Um, my primary job now is directing doctoral students 
who are pursuing a doctorate in theology and ministry in open and relational studies. Hmm. And this is a fully online doctoral program in the Oxford style, which means students work individually with me on projects, reading through things toward their doctoral degree. And is not only fully online, but because it's online, it's a lot less expensive than a lot of other doctoral programs. Yeah, I bet. This is through, uh, it's a joint collaboration with a, a startup seminary called Northwind Theological Seminary. And if you just, you know, search Northwind Theological Seminary, you'll find my program on there. And a Center for Open Relational Theology, which I direct. And so they've, these two groups have come together to make this doctorate. I'm going to make an announcement later this week. Uh, my first group of students, um, I think there's 10 right now. There might even be up to 12 by the end of the week. But you or some of the people who are listening might be interested in pursuing a doctoral degree with me in themes like we've been talking about yeah, the last absolutely. two hours. Well, I tell you, I, I say to my wife every other day for us, you know, I'm like, at some point, I want to go back into that world. Um, uh, I, I barely have time to eat most days. <laughs> and so I'm just like, I have no idea. I know my entire life is only going to get busier. We don't even have kids right now. You know, I'm like, yeah, I have no idea where I'm ever going to find time. I spend like five, six hours a day talking to people and kind of pastoring them. I put out material. I'm doing podcasts, you know, three, four times a day a week, you know, talk to people for three hours. I'm like, how the hell am I going to do some sort of academic But in pursuit? a lot of ways, I mean, yeah. I don't know you well, I don't know your life, but if you're putting together podcasts, you're doing interviews, you're already in the midst of the discussion intellectually. I, I can, what uh, you're basically doing is just- this into a thesis. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> Absolutely. And, well, and let me say something specific on that real quick. Um, because I'm an innovative kind of person, I have opened a variety of ways to do your final project in this doctorate. Mm. Some people are going to write kind of more of a standard dissertation. Other people are going to do something more uh, practical related to, you know, case studies or, you know, something like that. But I'm also open to innovative kinds of expressions for the doctoral degree. And I don't even know exactly what that looks like, but, you know, I don't know, maybe it's something to do with computer programming or podcasting. I don't know. Something worthy of kind of the culmination of doing this work. Mm. So you might be able to, to incorporate some of the things you're doing right now into that. Yeah. Well, I'm currently, so I'm working with a research company in the UK and we're doing a lot of research on the deconstruction kind of movement. And, and we're doing Ooh. a kind of meta study over multiple years where we're doing regular uh, surveys and, and diving deep into kind of who is this group? What are they thinking? Yes. Who, who goes into this? Who, who deconstructs? What happens after people deconstruct? You know, what areas do people land or settle? Do people settle or do they keep going? Or, you know, is this a, is this a seasonal thing? Is it long-term? And we're, we're looking at all these different dynamics. That's and so awesome. part of what I'm talking with them about is at some point I might um, turn this meta study into kind of maybe a, a doctoral kind of um, yeah, candidacy who, who knows um, yeah. so maybe we should we should talk at some point about all this <laughs> but so should other people I'll put I'll put the, these links in the show notes for people that are Thank listening you. as well so they don't have to kind of remember all these buzzwords and google them they can uh, just look yeah. at the show notes and click the buttons um, but yeah that's that's fantastic so how long has that been going this, this doctor you saying you just started this you year? know yeah, what's wild is I made the announcement May 1st, so a month and a week ago, wow. and I already have 10 students enrolled, wow. and uh, some of them have already started the program, so wow. uh, there's a lot of hunger for it. One, just mm -hmm. one quick illustration, uh, because of what you said, 
one of the students is in Canada and he wants to do a dissertation on obstacles to faith in God, especially on people who are doing this deconstructing. So okay. kind of like it's, it's, it's less of a sociological study and more of a uh, conceptual, you know, what do people say, the problem of evil, you know, science or evolution or whatever. I don't know what he's going to go toward, but that's kind of his general project. Mm. Awesome. Hey, if, if he would find it helpful, get him to uh, get in touch with me as well. Cause okay, we yeah. have this huge, um, you know, group of people, you know, there's, uh, we're working around 400 people right now, but it's growing rapidly who are going, we'd love to be studied. We'd love to answer a survey for you. Nice. So if, if yeah. it would help him to have a group of people that he can literally go, Oh, here's what 500 people are deconstructing said. Yep. Um, that could be very helpful. So we're wanting to be able to also be open to other people and other candidacies. We just had, um, do you know Michelle Collins at all? Um, I just put that her podcast out this week. She is a psychology person? Exactly. She's doing her yes. doctorate. Um, I think her candidacy is in um, the psychology of grief of going through yes. deconstruction. Um, and so fast exchange emails with her, but I don't know her personally. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So again, like another person that was like, wait, I could, I could ask like 500 people, a bunch of questions. And I have some clear cut cold data. That's great. Um, yeah, so it's quite yeah. exciting to be able to, um, I, I, I love data. I don't the thing is I don't really ever care about being a doctor or anything. I doesn't really <laughs> excite me particularly to be honest with you. Um, but I, I just love the world. I just love studying and looking yeah. at these things. My big concern, I talked to, when I talked to Jared, my friend that's doing his doctorate at King's college. Um, my problem is, and he says, you're because he did um, ministry school, and he's like, dude, you are never going to be able to get any kind of study. He's like, you can't study one thing for more than a week. He's like, I've never met you to read. I've never known you to read one book in one day. You've read three or four books every day I've ever met you. You've, you've just put it down after 10 pages and gone, oh, I want to read about this now. Like, and that's my biggest fear is like, I don't know if I could. <laughs> you just sound like a, you just sound like a typical open and relational theologian. So there we go. I'm, <laughs> you're I'm going all kinds it. of different directions. I'm, yeah. I'm made for it. So if people want to go down that line, um, cause you tend not to just pick up a doctoral program straight out of school. <laughs> so yeah. what, what kind of requirements are people going to uh, potentially need to look at something like that? Well, most people coming into the program have a master's degree. Mm. There are a couple of people who haven't yet finished their master's. And so uh, Northwind Theological Seminary also has uh, master's classes. So they will, some have dual enrolled in my program and to complete right. their master's. Uh, one person doesn't even have a bachelor's done. And so they're not in my program, but they're starting in the process uh, to get to that place where they could enroll. Yeah. Is there, um, generally speaking, a... a I'm intrigued by like how people transition from undergraduate to graduate. It's often fascinating to me, you know, like, like I mentioned my, my uh, father-in-law, right. He's got a master's in philosophy. I think his undergraduate was in mass and then he went to philosophy as a master's. And then as his, uh, you know, post-grad his doctorate, he and does like, uh, you know, astrophysics or something. And I'm like, this guy's bouncing around. Uh, yeah. And so is there generally speaking, you know, are most people coming into this program uh, doing their undergrads and, and their masters within theology, divinity, maybe philosophy, or, or do people come out of, is that something that people can do? Cause I just know we've got a I've very got diverse people, group of people. I've got two people with no theological uh, degrees. Both of them are psychologists. Okay. Who are really interested in th theology and psychology. So it doesn't have to, you don't have to have that kind of background. Sure. Um, 
you know, some people are pursuing more theoretical projects, more others, you know, one guy wants to do something on discipleship from an open and relational theology uh, perspective. Mm. Another person wants to do a brand new cosmology. So it's highly uh, theoretical. So it's, I'm open to doing lots of different things because my interests are all over the place like yours are. Sure. Um, and, you know, I have some background in both the practice and the theoretical. Yeah. Um, so we're willing to work with people who may not have all their degrees they would like to have, but, you know, are, are sharp and have a deep interest in open relational thought. Awesome. Well, yeah. If people are listening to this, they, they should definitely check it out for sure. Definitely. Um, yeah. And so you, 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 I've enjoyed chatting to you for two hours. So I, I, you're the sort of person I would love to be supervising me for a doctorate or <laughs> oh, thanks, you know, sit down every now and again and go, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? I feel like we can yeah. have some good chats there. <laughs> I do so too. That's, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of stuff like that because I'm like, oh, I would love to be supervising 10 different people all kind of exploring different things and having them come to me going, this is what I'm thinking. Can you read this? What do you think? Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's great yeah, awesome. definitely dude i've absolutely loved having you on it's been a good real pleasure. well i've enjoyed really the enjoyed conversation it. too so, yeah i'm sure we can uh we'll have you on sometime in the future again and we can talk about who knows maybe we can go down some philosophy or you know sounds, sounds good. like sounds like you've got a few different areas you could talk about we, we could dive into some of your other 24 books <laughs> <laughs> there you go i love it <laughs> that's awesome cool sounds well, good have a good evening yep yeah, uh, you I too, guess it bro. must be evening for you, isn't it? You mentioned uh, it's 5 p.m., 5 10 p.m. You're getting my there. time. Yeah. What, well, what, what's your time? We're 10 past midnight. So, oh, wow. All right. Yeah. I'm going to go chill. Yeah. And, uh, All, right. <laughs> All right. All right. Love you, Tom. Have a good girl. one. Yeah. Cheers. You too. Bye. So that was Thomas J. Ord. What a great mind. Uh, such a privilege to chat to someone like that and, and pick their brains and, and explore a whole new area of. Um, just a philosophical inquiry a theological inquiry um i do encourage you check out his stuff um he's got a lot of stuff out there he's got some books the, the god can't book is, is, is a very interesting read um and uh yeah thomasjord.com o-o-r-d um is his website you can find his social through there and facebook twitter all that good stuff i'll put some links in the show notes um to help with that if you want and um, yeah, and if you're looking at doing, um, you know, higher education, some some further education into the doctoral um, level, um, do check out his doctoral program with um, Northwind um, Theological Seminary as well. Um, sounds like a great program. Um, and so, yeah, do, do consider checking that out as well. That's all I've got uh, for this episode. Um, as always, you can check out thegracecourse.com for loads of different um, free resources and teachings on all sorts of different stuff. There is an introduction to open theism over there. It's it's, it's uh, glaringly limited, um, but uh, it's there. Um, I'll probably have to flesh that out a bit more after this podcast. Um, but there's loads of other stuff as well. Topic of hell, homosexuality, spiral dynamics, you know, human psychological development, things like that, um, and how they relate to faith, how different people approach them, um, things like that. Um, and you can also support what I'm doing by producing all this free content um, by donating if you if you want through the Grace Course is a great way to donate if you want to. It's a bit like Patreon, you know, you can donate and um, it gives you access to a private Facebook group where we have a few conversations every now and again and, um, and we do kind of a monthly 
um give or take a zoom call as well with with the partners um and that could be a really intimate um uh, great time of conversation and so if you'd like to do that thegracecourse.com if you are on a deconstruction journey the deconstruction network is a great resource for you it can help you connect with other people who are deconstructing um and so i i'd encourage you to check that out as well it's a great way to find people in your local area that are also going through this process of deconstruction but that's all i have for now i'll see you in the next episode